Good morning, Bentonville Church. It's great to be together. Before we begin, I wanted to let you in on something that will be taking place starting next week. So next Sunday, September 27th, our times for our services here at the building are going to change. We're going to go back to the more original times that we're used to. So our services will be pushed back to 8.15, which will still be outdoors until the weather makes that uh, just impossible to continue. And then 10.30 inside the building. So 8.15 outdoors and 10.30 inside the building. Another change that's going to happen on that day is that the 10.30 service uh, indoors will remain masked, but we're going to start adding in uh, back to our, our normal worship and singing. So we're going to be adding our singing back into that service. And so we're excited to just uh, see how God continues to bless that and use that to draw us closer to Him. And we're excited to see what will happen. So we hope uh, that if you're able, you will come and continue worshiping with us in whatever way you are most comfortable with. So 8.15 outdoors, 10.30 inside, or here uh, on our YouTube channel. We would love to have you continue worshiping with us, whatever that looks like uh, to you, whatever's most beneficial. And so may God bless us as we continue this journey together during some strange times, but we remember in the midst of it that God is still good and that He still loves us. His grace is still abundant to us and available to us. So may God be praised in all that we do. We're continuing our, our sermon today, our series through Christians and government, looking at Romans 13. And so just a few minutes ago, you probably heard from 1 Peter 2 if you want to stay there, but we'll also be in Romans 13 this morning. One of the most important declarations we can make is this. Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of the living God. This became the confession of the earliest church. These were the words that were always on their lips. I just want to read a couple of verses. This is by no means all of the verses in the New Testament that talk about this. But here are just a few that declare the importance that Jesus is Lord. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for in His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. May I never boast, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And quite possibly this was one of the earliest hymns sung by the church. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God our Father. Over and over and over again, we hear this declaration on the mouths of the early church. Jesus is Lord. This was the core of what they believed. This is what set them apart. So do you believe it? If so, I'd love for you to join me this morning and say this together. Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of the living God. Say that with me. Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of the living God. Praise God and amen. And by the way, with that declaration, you would all now be considered traitors, treasonous against the Roman Empire. 
You see, in 42 BC, Julius Caesar, right after he had been assassinated, was deified and declared to be a god by the Roman Senate. And his son, Octavius, whom he'd adopted, is one who really kind of helped push that through. But by virtue of the fact that Julius was a god, now Octavius, soon to be called Augustus, the venerated one, received the title himself, the Son of God. So while Augustus never called himself a god, he was fine with being honored and portrayed as one. So he used titles like venerated or worshipped one, Lord, Savior. Indeed, trying to garner favor, there was a calendar that was published around 9 BC, and it starts with this inscription, Since providence, or fate, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our expectations, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he had done, and since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of good tidings for the world by reason of which came through him. And it goes on from there. But did you notice what kind of words and phrases jumped out in the midst of that? That he set apart perfect order, filled with virtue for all of humanity. He was a savior, not just for us, but for all of our descendants. That he brought peace. Now, he ended war through war. But even his appearance was greater than anything that came before or could ever hope to come after. And it literally says that he was good news. The same word that we translate as gospel. This was the gospel of governmental power. And when Augustus died, he was officially declared to be a god by the Roman Senate. And over time, with each new emperor, that idea continued to grow. Each person, as they took power, embraced that idea and then projected their divinity and even pushed that that idea forward just a little bit more. And slowly over time throughout the years, they created an imperial cult. The imperial cult established temples throughout the Roman Empire, especially in cities like Ephesus and Pergamum and Nicaea. And in that, that temple, they worshiped a number of different things. The first was they worshiped Rome herself, the city and the empire as a deity, the goddess Roma. And then worshipped alongside of her were all of these ideas, all of these conceptions that they made divine. And so you would worship the goddess Pax, peace, a peace that was brought about through the Roman legions and the end of a sword. You might worship the goddess Victoria, victory, because Rome conquered her enemies. And then right alongside all of those personified ideas, You would also have idols and statues and depictions of the emperor and his family. And so all of Rome, including the emperor and all that he represented, were worshipped as gods by the people. Because this is what it meant to be Roman. You follow Caesar no matter what. 
So when the early church stopped and declared, Jesus Christ is Lord, they were implicitly stating, and therefore Caesar cannot be Lord of my life. We can give him honor, they would say. We will pay our taxes. We might even be able to serve in public office. We have people in the New Testament doing that. Or serve in the military. And we will pray for the emperor and all those who govern for the good of the empire. But we will not declare that Caesar is our Lord. The question that is facing those Christians, those in Rome, but all throughout the New Testament is this. Who gets my highest allegiance? If push comes to shove, who will I follow? And that's not an easy response for Christians who are living in the capital of the empire. It's a congregation that's made up of people from all walks of life. You have Roman citizens and those who had been born there but weren't citizens. You have rich and poor, men and women, slaves and free, Jews and Gentiles, and people of all different ethnic backgrounds. And the Jewish believers had just recently been able to return back to the city of Rome. They had been kicked out by an edict whenever there was just a disruption, probably over Jesus. And so Claudius just kicked all of the Jews out. And it's only upon his death that the new emperor, Nero, allows them to come back in. But they had been seen as threatening to the very fabric of society and government. And so the early church is left to to wonder, as people who are kind of on the edge, who are on the outskirts, who don't buy into the imperial decree, what should we do? And it was to people in that context, in that situation, that Paul wrote the words we've looked at these past three weeks. But I want to start just a little bit before chapter 13. We're going to be in chapter 12 of Romans, starting in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Paul tells them that the way they should act should always be good, upright, and honorable. Now, there is a lot to detest about their new emperor Nero. But whether or not you like the one in power... Don't give in to evil and don't live out evil. Do what is right. Live at peace. Practice good. Be subject. And Paul tries to make it very practical if you jump down to the end in verse 7. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Revenue to whom revenue is due. Respect to whom respect is due. Honor to whom honor is due. Indeed, Paul says the only debt that we are to owe is a debt of love. Love to one another, and love for our neighbors. Because Paul says, by by living into this debt of love, well, that is the fulfillment of the entire law. Now, that is Paul writing to the Christians in Rome. But the Apostle Peter gave similar advice to a group of Christians in Asia Minor. Asia Minor, as Peter is writing, is deeply aligned with the imperial cult. It's the center, really, of much of the imperial worship. It's the, the city of Ephesus had a massive temple that was dedicated to the, the worship of the emperor, his family, and to Rome herself. And as Peter is writing this letter, he is writing to people who grew up in that context, in that situation, in that area. This is the world they are used to. They are natives of that region. Yet because they have become followers of Jesus, 
They are now a new people. He uses terms from the Old Testament talking about Israel. They are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are belonging to God. And that's because they declare Jesus is Lord. But because they have made Jesus their Lord, their identity has changed. While they grew up in that region, they are natives. They are now foreigners and exiles, aliens and strangers because of the faith that they have. And so Peter says, live such good lives. And the way that you live and work and act, live such good lives that people might think you're silly for your belief and your faith, but they'll respect you for your behavior. And part of that that living into and living out of their faith is a calling for their civic behavior. He writes this in chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Peter, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor as supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So live as free people, But do not use your freedom to cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You see, in these words, Peter draws a similar distinction. We can hold the government in honor, but our fear, our awe, our our allegiance is given solely to God. Both of these ideas can be summarized in how Jesus spoke about taxes during his ministry on earth. When he was approached and asked whether or not we should pay our taxes, Jesus simply replied, Whose picture's on it? Well then, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. The question is, so then what are we meant to render unto God? What do we reserve for God alone and not for the governing authorities. Think on that for a moment. What do you render to God? What should we give back to Him for all that He has done for us? Well, I would argue the answer here is faith. Now, what is faith, we have to ask? Well, some would state that faith is complete confidence and trust in something or someone. We might use words like belief or loyalty. Some of us would would take it straight to the Bible and go to Hebrews 11 and say, well, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty of things not seen. And all of that is wonderful and beautiful. But I think there's a little bit more to faith than what we've been led to believe. There's a nuance of faith that these definitions miss that's really important. The Greek word we translate as faith in the New Testament is the word pistis. Say that with me, pistis. P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis. Now you are all Greek scholars. But throughout the Bible, it is translated as faith. But sometimes it's also translated as faithfulness. The idea of being faithful to something or someone. It carries the idea of being loyal or giving oneself in trust or giving over to something or someone. It carries ideas like reliability and confidence and assurance and fidelity, commitment, pledge loyalty. It is being always faithful. A New Testament scholar I really admire, a guy by the name of Matthew Bates, summarizes all of these ideas of pistis with one word, and that word is allegiance. He's not saying it's not about belief, it's not about having 
this uh, acceptance of an idea, but he says much more than that, it's not just believing, because demons do that and shudder, right? But it's saying, I'm going to give my life over to this thing. You see, we believe, we believe that God exists, that Jesus is his son, that he came to teach us how to live And then he died and rose again to life that we might live eternally with him. We believe that he will come again. This is where we are called to place our faith. But faith isn't just intellectual assent. It isn't just agreement or belief. Instead, we are called then to pledge every aspect of ourselves, our heart, mind, soul, and strength, our very being, our present and our future and our eternity. We pledge all of this to this idea. We pledge our allegiance to Jesus as the Christ, our Lord and our Savior, and the Son of the living God. Jesus is King. That's the faith that we believe in. And because He is King, that is meant to change everything. He puts his stamp upon us. It changes the way that we speak and we serve, the way that we act and react, how we spend our time and our money and our attention. It changes the way that we look at others, those who are like us and those who are completely unlike us. It changes our definition of who's in and who's out and who is our neighbor. It means that we are going to place the priorities of the kingdom of God over and against the priorities of the powers and kingdoms of this world. If Jesus is king, then it changes everything. Our declaration that Jesus is Lord isn't just idle words. They're our calling, our commitment, our confession, and our compass. So what does that mean for me? As a Christian living in the United States in the 21st century, what should I do? How should I act? What does it mean to live and love, work and serve and worship as Christians in the governmental context in which we find ourselves? There's no easy answer, and in fact, I think the answer is going to be different for each one of us. But I'd like for us to stop for a moment and consider a story. Four young men were taken away from home. They were abducted and put into into training in a world and a land not their own. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel. They were brought from their home in Jerusalem to the city of Babylon. And there they were brought to be government officials, but also slaves to the king who was there. And while they were there, they found ways that they could adapt and adopt the customs of the Babylonians in which they were living, in which they found themselves. And so they learned the language and literature and customs, and that means they also had to learn the religions and mythologies of the Babylonians. They took new names. They took on Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belshazzar, even though those those names had Babylonian deities and titles in them. They served in various positions of civil service, with one even reaching the highest levels of government and advising various kings. And they worked at these tasks with all of their strength and their ingenuity. They gave themselves over to this new role. But they also found that there were ways they couldn't adapt to the Babylonian customs around them. When Nebuchadnezzar made an image of himself in gold and erected it and made all the people bow down to worship it, the three refused. 
And they stated that they would worship God alone, even if it led to their death. And the king said, fine, if that's what you want, that's how it will be. He stoked a furnace very hot. He had them thrown in because of their beliefs. And then God rescued them from that. Or later on, a couple of decades later, when told he could pray only to Darius, Daniel instead practiced civil disobedience by going into his upper room and praying to God three times a day, knowing he would face punishment. And he was thrown into a den of hungry lions. But God protected him from it. These four faced a significant question and a seemingly difficult task. What does it mean for us to honor the government but not fear it? What does it mean to worship God alone while also being a citizen of a kingdom on earth? And for them, they found ways they could and ways they couldn't. On January 30th, 2019, I stood in front of my family and some friends and I raised my right hand and I repeated the following words. I, Daniel McGraw, do solemnly affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter. So help me God. And then last few words there are the most important because really it's only been by God's help that I've been able to do that. And this oath has shaped much of my life for the past two years. It shaped the way that I spend my time and how I focus one weekend a month. It's taken me away from my family for about 26 weeks out of the last year. Sometimes it has even been the focus of maybe even too much attention. But at the same time, it's been a blessing for me and my family. But I also want to tell you that the day I took that oath pales in comparison to an oath of allegiance I swore on January 30th, 1996, in which I went down into the water, surrounded my friends and family, my church family and my fellowship of believers, and I declared my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior because He took away my sins and He wants me to be a child of God. And as I was baptized into Christ on that day, And for me, that wasn't just intellectual assent to an idea. That was me saying, I'm not always going to get this right, but I want Jesus to be my Lord. And that day has changed everything. It gives me hope. It gives me purpose. It gives me life. It gives me a future. And it's shaped every aspect of my life since then. Now, here's the thing. I fall short. I don't always measure up. Sometimes my priorities get a little skewed, or I falter in my commitment. But that's the beauty of the grace that I accepted whenever I asked Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. I want Him to be my King, and when I fail in my allegiance to that, then I get another try. You see, that's the good news that we declare, that Jesus wants to be our Lord and our Savior, that He wants us to align our lives with His way of life, not to earn it, but because of what He has done for us, and we ought to give everything that we have because of what He's done. We believe that He is the way and the truth and the life, and that's the platform on which I want to stand. And so, when push comes to shove, 
my allegiance is to Christ in whom my hope is found. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul declares these words, but our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. Reflect on that for a minute. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as a Christian, how do I live into Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and the host of other scriptures? How should I live as a Christian interacting with my government? Well, I think that answer is going to be different for each one of us. But my hope in looking at Romans 13 for these last three weeks is that we will realize that there are many different perspectives on how this text can be interpreted and how it can play out in time and space and history. And honestly, it should give us grace, grace for one another when we see things differently, politically especially. So I'm going to tell you, vote if your conscience allows. Don't if it doesn't. Regardless, pray for those in positions of power. Pray for those who have authority. And find some way to serve your neighbors. That might be some sort of civil service or social service, but always seeking goodness and justice and mercy. Pay your taxes. Give honor. Find ways in which you can live out your faith in a way that aligns with our government. But always remember, don't ever forget to let God be your ultimate authority. That your citizenship is in heaven, not in the kingdoms of this earth. And that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. May God bless us as we live out these words. And may we always live into the citizenship that we've been given through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.